Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Happy New Year and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. I hope you all enjoyed the holidays. I spent mine in Cancun, Mexico and Canton, Ohio, two seemingly very different places, although you wouldn't have known it with the weather being so warm in Canton. You might have thought you were further south. I don't know. But in any case, I'm happy to be back at it for our 101st episode, so to speak. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our 100th episode, I encourage you to give it a listen or watch it on YouTube. It was a fun conversation about the state of free speech in America today with some of our most popular past guests, including Jonathan Rausch, Nadine Strawson, Greg Lukianoff, and Bob Korn-Revere. Now, for today's episode, however, we are going to go back in history. We are going to take a deep dive into the period of American history characterized by the Red Scare, McCarthyism, and the House Un-American Activities Committee. This is a period when a widespread fear of communism famously led to firings and blacklists in Hollywood, the government, and at our institutions of higher education. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party of the United States? That was the popular refrain, sometimes asked of those brought before government show trials that investigated individuals' political beliefs as if the mere holding of a political belief were illegal in the United States of America. Now, that's not to say there weren't any legitimate concerns about Soviet spies infiltrating the United States government. There were. But history has shown these concerns to be pretty overblown. The concerns led to a moral panic that severely harmed some of our most treasured principles, principles of free speech, free conscience, free association, and due process of law. And these concerns harmed and ruined the lives and careers of unfortunately many innocent people. Men feared witches and burned women, warned Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in an earlier case dealing with communist political organizing. On today's show, I speak with Ellen Trecker. She's a scholar of this period, a former professor at Yeshiva University and author most notably of Many Are the Crimes, McCarthyism in America, and No Ivory Tower, McCarthyism and the Universities. We discuss with Professor Schrecker the origins of the Red Scare and McCarthyism, how it manifested itself in government and elsewhere, the effects, of course, that it had on individuals at all levels of society, how it ended, and its lasting legacy. This is a deep dive that I hope you'll enjoy. I know I enjoyed it. But before we begin, I want to note that this conversation was recorded over the phone. So if it sounds like it was recorded over the phone, that's because it was. There are a few moments about an hour in where Ellen's phone cuts out, but it shouldn't be too bad. And overall, I think the audio quality is fine. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the show. Professor Schrecker, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. I want to start by asking you how you got interested in the Red Scare or the McCarthy era. Okay, this is uh, something I've been asked a lot. Disclaimer, I have not, nor have I ever been a red diaper baby. In other words, I didn't come from a household where McCarthyism ruined somebody's life because they had been involved with the communist movement. My uh, background is of a nice suburban girl from uh, suburban Philadelphia, no less, uh, who grew up in a liberal household. And I grew up during the McCarthy period. I graduated from college in 1960. So I am a member of the quote unquote silent generation. And it really was silent, um, which was because of McCarthyism, in fact, uh, where I I went to college at Harvard, and I didn't even know there were left-wing student groups. They were all secret. Otherwise, I would have joined. The furthest left that one could get was the Democratic Party. So I was in the Young Democrats at Harvard in the late 50s, met Jack Kennedy, our senator. Um, But uh, I did know that McCarthyism was an important event or an important uh, phenomenon 
during the 1950s when I was growing up. And later on, when I did get into working on it, uh, I realized that my sixth grade teacher had been fired during the McCarthy period for political reasons. And I checked, and that, in fact, was the case. But at the time, I didn't know that. I just knew that he was gone. Um, because one of the things about McCarthyism was it was secret, that if somebody got fired for political reasons, the employer kept it secret, and the person who was fired kept it secret in order to hopefully find another job. So anyhow, I got into it as a scholar because I had gotten a PhD in a subject I was really bored by, and I didn't want to continue in that field. And I was teaching a course as an adjunct uh, in freshman composition at Harvard, and I could teach the course as a mini course. And I decided that I would teach it about the 1950s. And I discovered that there was no book about the 1950s, nothing, zip. So being without a intellectual project, I said, okay, I'll do it. And luckily I got a grant and began working on it and very quickly discovered that to write a book about McCarthy is going to be a lifetime commitment. It was just a huge subject. So I narrowed it down and wrote my first book on McCarthyism in the universities. Then when I finished that, I realized there was still no general book. And that's when I wrote my second book uh, about, uh, it's called um, Many Are the Crimes, McCarthyism in America. And um, I seem to have, and I put that aside, and I, it has been uh, resuscitated because for some reason, and I think we all know what that reason is, people are becoming very interested in McCarthyism. Uh, there's somebody in the White House who makes people very nervous. And so I'm always being asked, are we seeing a recurrence of McCarthyism today? I want to ask before, and we'll get to that topic at the end of the podcast, I'm presuming, yes. but I want to ask about your time at Harvard. You said that you didn't really know all that was going on with the investigations at that time. Later, when you became a scholar of the period, did you look into and do research on some of the things that were happening at Harvard while you were a student there? And did you discover, for example, that any of your professors were wrapped up in this? Uh, I did. I didn't find any of my professors wrapped up in it. What was so interesting was to find how much they censored themselves. And I'll just give you one example. I was uh, studying German history, and I had a uh, class in 19th and 20th century German history. And the uh, professor was talking about the German Revolution of 1848. And as Harvard professors did, they'd give you a list of all the possible causes and interpretations. And I recall he gave us a list of about six things. And one was brilliant. One was absolutely brilliant. And it wasn't until I was teaching much, much later at Princeton that I read Karl Marx's little pamphlet on the revolutions of 1848. In other words, a Harvard professor did not uh, give any credit to <laughs> Karl Marx for analyzing the revolution of 1848, even though it was, you know, 1958 that this was happening. Was Harvard a hotbed for these sorts of investigations? Not particularly. It certainly was investigated because you could get great headlines. Mm -hmm. McCarthy, went, McCarthy, for example, went straight to Harvard and held a bunch of hearings there. Uh, nobody he called up was anybody I knew at the time, although later I interviewed a number of the people he had questioned. Um, and Harvard... Uh, claimed that it had been very good during the McCarthy period because one of uh, its uh, senior professors, a man with tenure, an eminent physicist named 
uh, Wendell Furry, had been uh, taken the Fifth Amendment, and I'll discuss that in a minute. Uh, and many schools were firing people who did that. But Harvard was, quote unquote, good because they didn't fire Furry, although they made sure t- that anybody who didn't have tenure uh, did not remain around. I want to take a step back here. I mentioned the Red Scare. We've talked about the McCarthy era, era, which is hearkening to Joseph McCarthy, the senator from Wisconsin who led the investigations in the Senate. But the Red Scare began before Joseph McCarthy, if I'm understanding it correctly. When and why did it start? Well, there you can have many different starting points. You can go back to the beginning of American communism in the sort of confused moments right after World War I, 1919. As soon as there was a communist party, there was anti-communist repression. But I think actually the uh, you can make a direct connection to a sort of rehearsal for McCarthyism, as it were, in the late 1930s, when um, there was a lot of hostility uh, to not just to communists, but to labor organizing during this period, especially uh, on the right. There was a lot of concern, of course, about uh, fascism and the rise of the Nazis and Stalin. I mean, it was a very confused period. And um, there were a number of investigating committees, including the most important one, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was formed in the late 1930s and began to question people, uh, asking the kinds of looking for hidden communists within the New Deal administration. The main target of um, these investigations, both before World War II and afterward during the uh, early years of the Cold War, was in fact the New Deal administration of Franklin Roosevelt. And so um, the opponents of the New Deal reforms such reforms as uh, assisting the organization of labor unions in particular, uh, try to make connections between these reforms and these reformers and uh, claim that they were being inspired by communism. You know, you don't see these sorts of investigations happening into other political parties. What is it about communism that is uniquely menacing to these investigators? Is it the fact that there have been revolutions in other countries? I understand also during World War II, there was the discovery of some uh, Soviet spies. What was it about them? Well, it was a lot of things. In other words, when we talk about this sort of right-wing political repression, it is um, coming from a number of different groups. For example, the Catholic Church is very anti-communist because communists uh, come and in uh, places like Mexico and especially after World War II in Eastern Europe were anti-religious against the uh, Catholic Church. So Catholics are very strongly anti-communist. Um, anti-labor business groups are very strongly anti-communist. Patriotic organizations like the American Legion had a lot of power during this period, and they were strongly anti-communist. But I think the most important group behind the anti-communist political repression, actually, was uh, the Republican Party. That especially once the Cold War began, and this is crucial because American communism had the Soviet franchise, if you want to call it that. They were, in fact, the American branch of the international communist movement. And once the Cold War began, it was very easy to portray the American communist movement as a Soviet puppet that was somehow um, planning to undermine American security. Were these... The, the, the American Communist Party, was this a, a Stalinist party, a Trotskyist party? Like what branch of, were they supportive of the Soviet Union? Were they dissenters from the Soviet Union? How would you characterize them at, at this time? Well, the American Communist Party was the American branch of 
uh, the Russian Communist Party, as it were. Uh, it, they were um, not all of the American communists joined the party because it was associated with Russia. Uh, they had uh, other things that they were concerned about, like organizing labor unions or fighting fascism. But what happened over the history of the American communist movement from its formation uh, in 1919 until it fell apart in the mid-1950s was that it was always sort of sloughing off people. If you didn't follow the appropriate line, uh, you'd be expelled. And so there were lots of little groups uh, always forming uh, from uh, people who had become dissenters within the Communist Party, Trotskyists, uh, various branches of Trotskyism, because that also began to splinter. And so these people, uh, to a certain extent, also became part of the machinery, as it were, that uh, operated the purges of left-wingers and communists during the uh, post-World War II Red Scare. And was... The Soviet Union supportive of the American Communist Party? I can just imagine today, for example, if we found out that Russia was supportive of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, and there are conversations happening around that right now, that there would be a lot of anxiety and fear about the influence and the power. There was. You know, in all of my books, what I found is that although the uh, supposed threat of American communism to the nation's security uh, was, in fact, way, way over-exaggerated. You know, there was really no threat once the Second World War ended. The uh, quote-unquote communists in government were all either evicted from the government or left themselves voluntarily. Uh, and there was no chance of any kind of communist revolution, as you can imagine. It was a very small and unpopular party. But it was plausible. You know, there was, I mean, if you ask communists, you know, what what's the party stand for? They'd say, well, we do believe in a communist revolution, but way, way, way in the future. You know, we're nowhere near ready for it. And um, people who spied were able to justify it uh, on the grounds that we were in a war for against uh, the Nazis, against Hitler, uh, and that we were allied with the Soviet Union, and therefore anything that helped the Soviet Union to oppose um, the Third Reich was therefore really helping to win the war. Uh, that wasn't exactly the case, especially with the atomic bomb. But nonetheless, it was plausible. And that, I think, is sort of the important piece that people don't, uh, especially people on the left, uh, don't uh, appreciate, that it was plausible, but it wasn't true. So I want to talk a little bit about those war years, the House on American Activities Committee was formed, I believe, in 1938. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. And then, of course, America enters the war a few years later, becomes allied with the Soviet Union. What was the Soviet Union's perspective on these investigations? Were they saying anything publicly about them? Were the investigations even happening during the war? No. HUAC sort of went into abeyance. Um, it you know, Russia was uh, America's ally and uh, you didn't have the sort of widespread support for purchase. There were worse issues, more important issues uh, than that. So, yes, there was, it was, I would say during the war, the uh, anti-communist political repression was on hold. And then when did it start after the war? Was it with uh, Churchill's speech over there? I think it was in Missouri. In 1946. Well, the Cold War begins to heat up. Uh, Stalin, um, you know, 
make sure that Russia, which had been invaded twice within several decades uh, by Germany, would never be invaded again. So he's taking defensive movements, uh, defensive steps to prevent another invasion of Russia from uh, the West. And what does he? What does the Soviet Union do? It um, had liberated all of Central Europe up into Germany. Uh, the Red Army had kicked the Germans out, and it just never left. And. Um, the Russians ensured that they would be protected by imposing communist puppet governments throughout Eastern Europe, all the way to Eastern Germany. And in a sense, there was nothing the Americans could do. They certainly could not have invaded Central Europe and fought another war against the Russians in 1945, 46, 47, the American people wouldn't have put up with it. Um, and that wasn't going to happen. I think Roosevelt knew that. Uh, Truman knew that. Yeah, there were suggestions that Roosevelt kind of gave Poland to Stalin during the war. This is even before the war ended. And it aggravated Churchill, of course, because Poland was the reason they came into the war. Again, this is plausible, but nonetheless, not true. Um, Roosevelt and Stalin and Churchill met toward the end of the war in the beginning of uh, 1945, I think it was, uh, at Yalta in Russia. And supposedly that was where Roosevelt was, you know, it was a few months before he died. He was very sick. He had a heart condition. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he shows up there and the uh, scenario goes that he uh, has been hoodwinked into giving Eastern Europe to Stalin. Now, the uh, reason and the way in which it ties into McCarthyism, this particular scenario, is that one of the State Department officials who was at Stalin, at Yalta, not in a policymaking position, but in a sort of administrative position, you know, making sure that there were enough uh, hot meals to go around or something, was a man by the name of Alger Hiss. Mm. And in the um, summer of 1948, Hiss is uh, accused during a hearing of the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, of having been a member of a secret communist cell in Washington before World War II. Uh, and this e particular fact, which I think is true, um, then is... Uh, brought out and emphasized, particularly by a young representative in his first term in Congress from California, a man by the name of Richard Nixon. I think you've probably heard, heard of, of him. heard of him. Yes. And Nixon uh, is getting information, secret information, from the FBI to that uh, give, enables him to make charges against Hiss that will eventually end up with Hiss being convicted of perjury for having lied before HUAC about knowing uh, the main person who accused him of being a communist, a man by the name of Whitaker Chambers. Uh, so with this story, which is takes facts and then makes a scenario that can implicate the entire Democratic administration of both Roosevelt and Truman for being soft on communism, for selling out the American uh, security to Stalin at Yalta and thereafter, uh, gets a lot of pl plausibility and a lot of attention and, of course, makes the career of Richard Nixon. And Joseph McCarthy, when does he enter the picture? McCarthy is a very late comer. 
he uh, had entered uh, Congress as a senator in 1947 um, and had uh, a very undisputed Distinguished career. Many people considered him the worst senator uh, in the Senate. He was looking for an issue and he gets um, information and support from a whole bunch of uh, people who are very invested in another scenario because not only, as they claim, was uh, were people like Kiss betraying Central Europe to Stalin, but also betraying China. And he picks up on this particular um, scenario, the quote-unquote loss of China. It happens during the, uh, the administration of Harry Truman when the Chinese Communist Revolution takes place and by uh, 1949, China has uh, fallen to the uh, Communist Party under Mao Zedong. Now, again, this was not something that the Americans could have prevented. China was not America's to the United States to lose. Although it was our ally during World War II. It was our ally. We were allied with Chiang Kai-shek, who was the uh, leader of uh, the Republic of China, but he was corrupt and uh, ineffectual, uh, not a good leader. There were people in the State Department who wanted to get rid of him because he was, um, you know, America doesn't always pick good dictators to support, <laughs> what can I say? Um, and he was one of them. And, uh, you know, the Americans are hoping, as they always do and have, I don't know, certainly since of, uh, after World War II, uh, that there's some kind of third force that will create a, a liberal democratic government. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're, that doesn't happen. And the Chinese uh, communists who had been uh, leaders in the fight against the Japanese occupation of China. And what you have to realize is during World War II, the uh, Japanese were in control of most of China and much of the war in East Asia was taking place in uh, China where the communists under Mao Zedong were trying to push the Japanese out of their own country. So Mao had the uh, sort of aura of being a liberator from the Japanese. Um, and it certainly wasn't something that the Americans could have controlled. But nonetheless, there was plausibility. Again, there were people in the State Department who uh, realized that Chiang Kai-shek was not doing a very good job and hoped for some other kind of system, uh, some other kind of regime, more democratic, more attuned to the needs of the Chinese people would uh, replace him. That didn't work. Um, and so you have, by 1949, when the uh, Chinese Revolution succeeds, you have the loss of Eastern Europe, quote unquote, you have the loss of China. And one other thing that makes people really terrified was the um, Soviet explosion of an atomic bomb. The United States had lost its monopoly over nuclear weapons. Again, uh, communist espionage was involved, and it was. The uh, Russians probably would have gotten the bomb. They definitely would have gotten the bomb. They had perfectly good um, Soviet physicists and every all the scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb during World War II uh, knew that the Russians could make a bomb if they wanted to. They had the scientific knowledge to do that. And so um, the, the espionage simply made it easier for them to do it. They did it uh, probably a year or two before they would have otherwise. Um, but anyhow, that sense uh, of the United States losing the Cold War 
um, is picked up by especially Republicans in Congress. And McCarthy comes on the scene in the beginning of 1950, waving these lists of what he claims are uh, communists in the State Department who have given uh, China and Eastern Europe to the Russians. We, why are we losing the Cold War? Well, we weren't losing the Cold War, but he's claiming we are. And it gets, uh, he gets support. And this is terribly important. He gets support from the leaders of the mainstream Republican Party. In other words, he's a marginal guy. And people know, or people who are in the know, know that his charges are often uh, totally loony. You know, he starts out saying there are 206 communists in the State Department. When he's challenged, he says, well, there are 81. He's then challenged to give the names, and he can't do that. Mm. Uh, and this goes on. He discovers um, that, you know, if you just keep lying and keep lying and denying stuff, that people eventually begin to take you seriously. I think we see something like that today. <laughs> but anyhow, um, he does begin to make these attacks. He particularly picks on a uh, rather eminent China scholar named Owen Lattimore, who uh, he claims was a secret communist giving the number one spy in America. Lattimore, who uh, is a sort of feisty guy who's teaching at Johns Hopkins, um, you know, fights back. There is a uh, congressional investigation. And as this congressional investigation begins and we're hearing charges of communists in the State Department and denial and the Truman administration is being very defensive about this. And McCarthy is uh, attacking the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, directly. And this is all happening. And suddenly North Korea invades South Korea. Yes, I was going to ask about that. And that sort of gives McCarthy's charges just a emotional boost you know oh my god is this the beginning of world war three well the dominoes start to fall i mean you hear the domino theory come a little bit later but did it lend any i mean it obviously provided kindling for mccarthy but did it provide credence i mean was was there something to what he was saying even if his methods were uh, tyrannical right um no, because what he was talking about was there are today communists, today 1950, communists in the State Department who are responsible for all of this. There were no communists in the State Department. The people were running away from, you know, communists were leaving the party, if anything. Mm -hmm. The uh, party is under attack. The top leaders, what's happening in 1950? The top leaders of the Communist Party are on trial for supposedly, quote unquote, teaching and advocating the overthrow of the American government by force and violence. So what you have to realize is this very condensed chronological moment of the Korean War, the trial of the top communists, the arrest of the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, uh, you name it. It was uh, the Hollywood 10. Um, the loss of China. It was just one thing after another. Bing, 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 bing. So no wonder uh, American politics were uh, kind of chaotic, I think. And that um, the Truman administration is really uh, set back on its heels. It's very defensive. After all, there really had been communists in the government. We know that. I mean, people have admitted that they they were both in the government and communists, um, but they weren't really hurting American security. So this, they weren't spying or otherwise trying to overthrow the government. They just happened to have communist sympathies. Because that's my question is, you know, he, he waved those 200 names or 80 names. Were any of those names actually true, or was it just all BS on McCarthy's no, part? I think probably some of them were really communists, but many of them were people who were involved in groups that 
also contained communism and what we uh, that also were supported uh, by the Communist Party in um, ways that were conspiratorial. Because, and let me give you a little background here. The Communist Party was formed, it was a revolutionary party. It thought the American Revolution was going to follow, because after all, if Russia had a revolution and there were revolutionary governments lasting a few weeks in places like Germany and Hungary, uh, so why not the United States? Well, that was, um, to use a fine Yiddish word, Meshuggana, crazy. <laughs> um, but anyhow, what happened was uh, there was a Red Scare right after the First World War. And the Communist Party, this little teeny party made up mainly of Russian-speaking immigrants uh, in places like uh, Chicago and New York, uh, went underground. And it was an illegal party. Its members were all secret. They were getting some money from the uh, Russian government in Moscow, but not a lot. Anyhow, they're sort of small, they're furtive, uh, and they don't really, the Communist Party is uh, revitalized uh, during the 1930s. Clearly, the Depression shows that there's something wrong with capitalism. At that time, people weren't very well informed about what was really happening in Russia, and they assumed that, oh, look, you know, there's no Depression in the Soviet Union, people aren't out of work selling apples, you know, whatever. Uh, and so um, communism especially began to appeal to a whole generation of idealistic individuals who wanted a better world, who wanted uh, to uh, have a more um, humanitarian society, uh, they were particularly concerned about organizing labor unions. They were working with unemployed people, trying to get uh, better services for them. They were also becoming concerned about the rise of Hitler, uh, more so probably than any other group in the United States at that time. They were also very concerned about uh, racial equality. And this is something people don't often know, that in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s even, the Communist Party was the only organized group outside of groups that were concerned specifically with civil rights that was actually working for racial equality. And so it attracted a lot of uh, idealistic people who were concerned about peace, about social justice, about uh, racial equality. And um, a whole generation of people went into the party, not necessarily because they thought the Soviet Union was wonderful. They swallowed it. I mean, the party was uh, very much a supporter of the Soviet Union. They never really criticized the Soviet Union, which was a big mistake. I mean, the party, as an American organization, made two serious mistakes. One was following the Soviet line, which it did. And the other was that it remained secret. And it uh, essentially expected its members not to admit they belonged to the party, which was a serious mistake for a number of reasons. One was that the party then couldn't take credit for the uh, more positive things that its members did, like organizing very effective, democratically controlled labor unions. Um, but all of these communists who were leading the labor unions couldn't say, yeah, I'm a communist. And one of the things I do because I'm a communist or one of the things why I became a communist was because the communists were so interested in organizing labor union and trying to get more economic equality in the United States. And that's a good thing. And I want to be part of that movement. Um, but these people had to uh, deny it, which they did. And then when it's revealed that they were in the party, they look like they lied, which they had. And you get people um, 
giving the aura of conspiracy to this party, which was really not a conspiracy, except in the sense that it was trying to defend its members by keeping its activities secret. And that was a serious mistake because when uh, the uh, post-war Red Scare occurred, all that the sort of witch hunters of the time had to do was expose someone as a communist and then that person would be fired. So there are various things going on here and I want to separate some of them and um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there are the, there are the, the purges from voluntary associations uh, or private associations, I should say, private universities such as Harvard or the other Ivy Leagues, the the private associations associated with Hollywood, for example. I don't know whether it's the Screen Actors Guild. But then there's also the separate investigations uh, through HUAC, through Joseph McCarthy, into people yeah. in the State Department. I want to – and in those – in the prior associations uh, – not to justify them, but they have the right to purge people if they want, not that they should. I, I'm wondering through HUAC and through um, the McCarthy investigations, what justification did they have f- for going after people partaking in private political associations outside of, of outside of work? Like, are they arguing that it's treason? Are they arguing that they're, there's foreign support, that they're spies? What are the charges there because as a First Amendment person myself, we have the right to freely associate around political beliefs. Uh, so I, I'm just trying to understand what what did they do wrong? What justified compelling them to come before Congress and to testify about their internal beliefs? Uh, they didn't do anything wrong except belong to this party that looked like it was a criminal conspiracy. And what QAC did And what the FBI in particular did was try to ensure that communism in and of itself would be seen as an illegitimate uh, activity, that it would, there was no law making the Communist Party illegal. There were attempts, in fact, to do that, but that never really caught on. But if you could make a, create what were called offense artifacts. For example, uh, let's look at the Hollywood 10. This was uh, one of the most important early set of congressional investigations by the House on American Activities Committee in 1947. And they can call people in front of in front of these committees without accusing them of a crime. They can call them before the committees for whatever reason they want. For whatever reason they want. And they can say, you know, as they try to, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And uh, you and I being called up today by uh, that kind of a committee, being First Amendment groupies, would say, none of your business. I assume we would say Yes, that. of course. <laughs> and we would be supported. But because of the creation of this national security justification for eliminating communists from positions where they might endanger the United States, and I'll get into that in a minute, um, it looked scary. It looked terrible. And people, uh, employers, the studio heads, the university presidents uh, felt that it was bad public relations to have a Communist Party member on their payroll. And so they simply uh, got rid of them. Uh, What J. Edgar Hoover had done, and Hoover really is so much more responsible for McCarthyism, that if we had known then what we know now, we would have called it Hooverism. Um, he was a committed anti-communism. He had been uh, that way since World War One. He'd been working in the Justice Department and had been following this revolutionary quote-unquote uh, party since it was organized and was responsible for creating this scenario 
and providing evidence that seemed plausible. And he would um, there, and the way that made it particularly plausible and reinforced it was to convict people associated with communism of some kind of criminal thing, some kind of criminal charge. So when HUAC decides it in the uh, fall of 1947 that it's going to go after Hollywood and its decision makes sense because you go to Hollywood and, you know, you're going to have celebrities. You're going to make it into the front pages. You know, if you go after an auto workers union in Buffalo, New York, you're not going to get the same kind of publicity. You'd get as many communists maybe, but you wouldn't get the publicity Mm -hmm. that you do for Hollywood. So, uh, they bring all these Hollywood people to Washington, and then they say, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And these people, um, all of whom either were or had been in the Communist Party, um, HUAC usually was a lot more accurate than McCarthy. They had better information, uh, and they knew who was communist and who wasn't. And they probably weren't, they probably weren't drinking as much. <laughs> exactly. And, um, anyhow, uh, the Hollywood tenants, they were called, refused to answer their questions and claimed that they were protected by the first amendment. But because of this notion that somehow communists threatened national security, even the Supreme court was willing to sacrifice the First Amendment to national security. And that's what happened. In other words, the Supreme Court is collaborating with McCarthyism or with these purges during the late 1940s up until really about the mid-1950s. They do not um, protect people who are communists from criminal charges or from being fired or whatever. Do they compel testimony? I mean, are these people not allowed to take take the fifth? They, no. They do not compel testimony directly, but actually indirectly they do. Because what they do is they say, okay, you can take the Fifth Amendment. You know, you can't take the First Amendment because a, it's a matter in these times of national insecurity, when there is a dangerous international threat, uh, we understand that some things override freedom of speech. That's what they, you know, those are the big decisions of the uh, late 40s and early 50s. Um, So, for example, when the leaders of the Communist Party are uh, convicted for quote unquote, teaching and advocating. Those are speech crimes. Yeah. Uh, but that's what it was. Uh, the Supreme Court said it was a, clearly it was not a unanimous decision. There were two dissenters. Um, but the Supreme Court says these are dangerous times. The Communist Party, we know is just a pathetic little party, but you can never tell. And in these times, we can't take a chance. That's what they said. And so there goes the First Amendment, but they did preserve the Fifth. But the Fifth is the one which says you can't be a witness against yourself. Uh, You know, in other words, when uh, they ask, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? They that people say, I refuse to answer that question on the grounds of the Fifth Amendment. Well, what does it look like? It looks like they're hiding something. Mm -hmm. And they are, of course, they're hiding their... Uh, membership or past membership in the uh, American Communist Party. But why are they hiding it? Why are they taking the fifth? And it's for a very simple reason. Because if somebody said, yes, I uh, joined the Communist Party in 1938 at the University of Wisconsin because I was so worried about the rise of Hitler and this was the only group on campus that was opposing Hitler, you know, you or I might have joined. Anyhow, The next question that you then asked is, and who else was in this group with you? Asked him to name names. Exactly. And that 
people were unwilling to do. And you have somebody like Lillian Hellman, the uh, playwright, called up by HUAC in 1951 saying, I will not cut my conscience to fit this season's styles, I think was the way she put it. Um, I will not become an informer. You can't make me do it. Although she said, you know, if you didn't ask me to be an informer, I would tell you all about my politics. <laughs> and what happened was that the Supreme Court, again, had ruled that if somebody takes the Fifth Amendment to, ref- if somebody does not want to become an informer, the only way you can refuse to become an informer is to take the Fifth Amendment. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you are in contempt of Congress. And if you don't want to be an informer and you don't want to go to jail, um, you have to take the Fifth Amendment when a congressional investigator or any investigator with that, that uh, power of contempt uh, ask you, are you now or have you ever been in the Communist Party? Because if you say, yes, I was in the party in 1938, but I left in 1948, um, they will then ask you to name names. And you can't at that point say, I refuse to answer on the grounds of self-incrimination because you're not talking about yourself anymore. Mm. And the Supreme Court, in one of its terrible McCarthy-era decisions, uh, essentially said, once you say, you know, give, essentially say, once you admit you were once a communist, you can't then not be an informer. In other words, you have waived your Fifth Amendment right against being a witness against yourself if, in fact, you say you had been in the party. And so what it looked like was these people were hiding some terrible secret, whereas many of them, probably the vast majority of these quote-unquote unfriendly witnesses were people who had been in the party, maybe still were in the party, would have been willing to talk about it, willing to talk about what they had done, willing to admit that they were wrong about Stalin. Um, you know, they could, they could have educated the entire country to the nature of communism, its problems, and uh, also some of the good things that it had done. Uh, but they were unable to. Thank you, Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And what we're, we were seeing during the highlight of this uh, post-war Red Scare, which is really from about 1947 through to 1954, 55, 56, was uh, a complete collapse of the political mainstream from the Republican Party's establishment uh, from, uh, for example, the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Robert Taft of Ohio. Actually, I've seen it in uh, the original document. Actually wrote a note to McCarthy when he was first waving around many of his lists, essentially saying, well, if one of the people you accuse isn't uh, correct, just keep going. Oh, Find geez. another one. But you know, there, encouraging him. Were there other people on the political mainstream outside the Republican Party? Because I remember reading somewhere that even Robert F. Kennedy was wrapped in, up in this. Not just Robert, so was John. It was probably politically unpopular to oppose it. Exactly, exactly. And the Democrats were terrified. This stuff was really hurting them. Um, and they, there was nobody with the guts, as it were, to get up and say, no, this does, isn't right. You know, that there is no danger. Um, why? There, people just go with what uh, sort of the conventional wisdom is. You had, um, you know, there were a few people 
for example, uh, by the early 50s, when it was clear that if you took the Fifth Amendment before a committee uh, because you didn't want to name names, and it was pretty clear that a lot of people were doing that, um, people began to stop taking the Fifth Amendment. They would just sort of say, no, I'm not going to answer your questions, uh, hoping that uh, if they didn't take the Fifth Amendment, they would be able to save their jobs. That didn't work. Uh, so any lack of cooperation, it wasn't whether you took the Fifth or the First or nothing, um, usually resulted in a loss of your job. And the main sanctions of McCarthyism were economic. Mm. Were, were, did, did these uh, investigations filter down to the local level? Were there like local petty tyrants who were going after the head of the PTA, for example? Yes, there were. The, it, uh, local governments, teachers were very vulnerable. After all, they were public employees. Mm. And the scenario was they were going to poison the minds of the youth. Well, um, those of us who have been teachers know perfectly well we have absolutely no influence over our students. <laughs> but anyhow, um, you know, that was the scenario. We've got to get rid of these people. They're going to, you know. So what was happening was uh, communism or association with communism uh, belonging to an organization that had communist leaders, for example, that was all you could make up a scenario that was plausible, even if untrue. And then you could invoke sanctions against individuals. And this was done. The sanctions were primarily economic. You know, we don't, political repression in the United States did not look like political repression uh, under authoritarian governments. People weren't killed. People weren't thrown in jail. There were probably several hundred people who were uh, served prison sentences for something related to communism, whether it was contempt of Congress, uh, like the Hollywood 10, or whether it was perjury, like Alger Hiss. Um, but um, most of the, the people who were uh, convicted under the crim some kind of criminal process were uh, open leaders of the Communist Party. There was an attempt, in other words, to criminalize communism. And there were a few people who actually went to prison for membership in the Communist Party. Very few. I think there were two, and Kennedy finally uh, pardoned one of them. I want to close up here because we only have about five minutes. I want to I want to get down to how this ended. Uh, was it Walter Cronkite? Was it the army? How did this all end? Because the Soviet Union didn't end in the late 1950s. I mean, it kept going. It kept going, but you know what? The witch hunters ran out of witches. Mm. You know, people were leaving the Communist Party in droves by 1956. Um, and it was getting clearer and clearer, especially to people who are becoming aware of just how over-exaggerated all of this was. People were opposed, especially within the Democratic Party, are beginning to get a little bit of backbone because McCarthy is such a you know, out of control individual that uh, he becomes vulnerable. You have Edward R. Murrow uh, having, uh, beginning to unravel some of these accusations. Oh, it was Edward R. Murrow, not Walter Cronkite, who said, uh, have you no shame, right? Yeah, okay. I got no, that, wrong. It, that was not even Edward R. Murrow. That was the army. That was what brought McCarthy himself ah. down was that um, President Eisenhower didn't have the courage to attack McCarthy. And Eisenhower deserves 
both uh, condemnation for not taking McCarthy on and credit for finally uh, taking him on, which he did after McCarthy starts attacking the army. Well, what was um, Eisenhower's background? He was a general. His entire career was in the army. And McCarthy had directly attacked a general named Ralph Swicker, who was one of Eisenhower's protégés. So he finally, as it were, uh, goes for McCarthy and uh, the rest, as we call it, uh, is history. Um, The man who said, have you no decency, sir, no sense of decency, is... uh, was the chief lawyer for the army and McCarthy had just finished attacking one of the younger members of this guy's law firm. Uh, after he'd promised not to, everybody knew that this young man was somehow vulnerable. He belonged to a group that was under supposedly communist control. Uh, and so the army's lawyer, Joseph Welsh says, you know, Basically, have you no decency? You've ruined this young man's life. Well, they hadn't ruined the young man's life, but nonetheless, it was a very um, important uh, moment, public moment in the unraveling of McCarthyism. But it was happening. Liberals were beginning to stand up for things rather than panic at the thought that they might be accused of being communist. And also there were other issues. Um, you've heard about something called Brown versus Board of Education, yeah. probably. Well, I think and that the Supreme Court, in part, had been waiting, uh, sort of was planning to eliminate segregation, legal segregation. And it was willing to sacrifice I mean, I hate to say this. I think they were willing to sacrifice the Reds for the Blacks. Mm. They knew that in certain circles, both um, were very unpopular. So the Supreme Court got a bit of backbone as well and began to, uh, for example, when somebody is uh, convicted of contempt before a congressional committee not taking the fifth, the uh, Supreme Court would think of a technical reason why they could overturn um, that person's conviction on the grounds that the committee wasn't asking relevant questions, that questions had to be related to a legislative goal and asking somebody, are you now or have you ever been, is not a legislative goal. Were there outside groups who helped put, like the ACLU, were they defending some of these people who were brought in front of the committees. I, I, I remember reading in R.E.A. Nyer's book, Defending My Enemy, that there was even there was a period where the ACLU itself tried to expel, expel a member for being a communist. It did. It did. It expelled a, a woman named uh, Elizabeth Gurley um, Flynn, who was a uh, member of the Communist Party's Politburo, the ruling uh, group of the American Communist Party. And she had been a labor organizer and was... Uh, on the board before World War II and was kicked out. Um, And during the height of McCarthyism, the ACLU refused to defend anybody who was a communist. Well, that says a lot. I mean, it, it, so it really was a silent generation, even when you, when, you, when you don't have your premier civil liberties organization willing to step right. up to defend civil liberties, right. free association. And there, were, there was a left-wing civil liberties group. It was called the uh, Emergency Committee for Civil Liberties, which included a whole bunch of uh, left-wing civil libertarians. And I think the ACLU today recognizes as R.A. Nair put it, that it had done something not great during the McCarthy period. Same thing, for example, within the academic community. The AAUP was completely quiet for about six years during the height of the McCarthy period. And to wrap up here, to put a bow on it, HUAC didn't end in 1956. It kept going. When did, were there still investigations? When did it finally close its doors? Or- it- out slowly 
largely because there were other issues. Uh, Eisenhower, after all, was trying to at least uh, make some arrangements with the Soviet Union over nuclear weapons. There was the beginning of arms limitation talks, at least. Uh, so, you know, the, the terror of the early Cold War was abating. And uh, the civil rights movement was heating up. Um, so there were other issues. Uh, all of a sudden, it wasn't so important to get rid of non-existent communists who were posing non-existent threats to uh, American security. And, and Joseph McCarthy dies. And Joseph McCarthy, after the Army McCarthy hearings, he is censured by the Senate for attacking this general and for behaving, I forget what the language is, but in ways that were disrespectful. And um, he essentially drinks himself to death. In takes him two years, and he dies uh, in 1957. Uh, and um, the Supreme Court begins rolling things back. By the 1960s, HUAC is uh, attacking peace groups, and there's a wonderful moment when they attack an organization, a feminist organization. We're going to see a women's movement as well as a movement for uh, African-American rights and stuff. Um, They're attacking this uh, group called Women's Strike for Peace. And the women who are going to be questioned, are you now or have you ever been, are thrilled. They're going to be able to talk about their organization. They dress up in gorgeous clothes and their supporters, as they go up to the um, witness stand, hand them bouquets of flowers. They're making fun of the committee. And that just sort of deflates it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to leave it there. And what was the name of that feminist group again? group called Women Strike for Peace. Very good. Well, I'll put them in the show notes. Is there any last words, anything that you think is really important for our listeners to understand about this period that we haven't covered yet? Yes. The main thing is that the attack on individuals, though terrible for the individuals, was not as bad as the political impact of McCarthyism. And I think it's the elimination of so many political possibilities that McCarthyism achieved. And that was the real damage that it was done. Well, very good. I think we have to leave it there. I think we got a lot for our listeners to chew on. Uh, I kept you longer than I said I would keep you, so I apologize for that. No, I think I kept you longer. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all very good. And I hope to have you on again sometime in the future because you discuss academic freedom outside of the McCarthy era a lot. It's part of your work. You wrote a book. Yeah, I'm writing a book now about academic freedom in the 60s. Oh, very good. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show when that comes out. You were also uh, working with the American Association of University Professors, running their blog for a number of years. So uh, I'm sorry we didn't have a a chance to get to that on this show, but it just gives us another opportunity to talk in the future. Okay, thanks a lot. And um, it was a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure talking with you as well. Okay. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org, or you can call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Those reviews help us attract new listeners to this show. And until next time, thank you again for listening.